Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast powered by Kasoon Carr. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rosie Burbridge. Rosie is an intellectual property lawyer at partner at Gunner Cook. Rosie has written a book called European Fashion Law from Startup to Global Success and regularly writes for popular IP blogs and publications. Rosie has been recognized as one of 20 women in IP from around the world who are destined for great things. So, a very big welcome, Rosie. Thanks very much, Rob. What an introduction. Very kind of you to list off all my great achievements. (laughs) Indeed. And we're going to dig a lot more into them a little bit later on. But before we go through all of that amazing work that you have achieved, we do have our customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast. So, on the scale of 1 to 10... 10 being very real, how real would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality and reflection of the law? I mean, it's about a two, isn't it? Let's be honest. <laughs> it's had a few gems over the years. I, I only really watched the first couple of series and I, I definitely haven't watched every episode. But like all legal dramas, the biggest fiction is that anything can get wrapped up in a single episode. You know, a lot of the issues that they had to deal with would have taken most law firms at least a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's amazing how they managed to to suddenly make these cases all happen. So, yeah, I think your two is well and truly justified. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about your sort of family background and, and upbringing first. Sure. So, I mean, I guess my mum is a nurse and my dad was a lecturer at the university. He actually taught law. He taught European law and business practice on the LPC. And I guess as a result of his background, he was very keen and I was always very keen that I not become a lawyer. So that was a bit of a fail on my part. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I grew up partly in London and then we moved full on countryside when I was about 12. And after that, I decided again on the theme of not becoming a lawyer to study English literature at university, which I loved. And I then was very set on becoming, I don't know, someone in publishing or going into teaching or I guess one of the more stereotypical things that you do with your English degree. And it just so happened that I shadowed someone who was part of my, oh, maybe I'll be a journalist phase, who worked at the time, because at the time my dad was doing a column for like legal queries at the time. So, I mean, I guess one of those very fortunate things of having a connection into that world. And I discovered that journalism was really not for me. It involved quite a lot of very angry people with my experience. But I had the opportunity to meet Sir Desmond Silver, who was at that time involved in the International Criminal Court, which was in Sierra Leone. And I was just so fascinated by what he was doing. And I had no idea that there was this opportunity to work outside of a business context. Or or really, I, I mean, I suppose like any child, you don't necessarily pay that much attention to what your parents are talking about. I just had this vague notion of what law was and the opportunities that it involved. And anyway, he really opened my eyes and was such an engaging character that I started to think about law a bit more seriously. And the rest is history. Well, a few things happened in between, but that's how that's how I really got going. That's how the legal career began. 
Yeah, no, good for you. And you sort of, I think you did the graduate diploma in law, then you went on to the LPC, and then you obviously did your diploma in IP at the University of Oxford as well. So quite a bit of a academia under your belt. Yeah, exactly. And actually, it's something that doesn't tend to get make the public CV. But on the theme of wanting to, to look at the human rights side of things, I actually took a year out between the LPC and starting my training contract at Altwang and did an internship at the Centre for Capital Punishment Studies in Port of Spain, Trinidad. So that essentially meant going into the prisons and working with death row inmates on their appeals to the Privy Council in London. And that was a really eye-opening and rewarding experience, but also showed me that a career in human rights was not the right thing for me. I found it very difficult to compartmentalise what I'd seen and experienced during the kind of working day. And it was just very lucky to, I suppose, to be on a Caribbean island, but there were lots of nice distractions after the prisons of Trinidad, which I can assure you are not somewhere you would want to end up. No, not not at all. And I, I guess that, that, that nicely sort of leads us to the area of law, which you do know quite a fair bit about, which is intellectual property. But what drew you to a career in IP? Two things. Firstly, the opportunity to work with really creative people. So whether it's working on a pharmaceutical patent or a copyright in a play or an artistic work, there IP is all about people who are creative and are generating things that are important for society in one way or another, whether it's cultural or science. So that was really, really important for me. And then also, as you touched on earlier, I think I really liked the academic side to IP. I think it's a much more sort of technical, complicated, strategic area than, than perhaps some others are. And because there is so much variety in there and so many nuances in the international system as well. I've got a huge amount out of thinking and working with people on all sorts of different problems across lots of different sectors. Yeah, that's great. So thanks for sharing that. And you have risen through the ranks very, very swiftly. And as of today, you are um, a partner, an IP partner for going to cook. So could you tell us a bit about how your practice has changed, if at all, since you've sort of become a partner at um, going to cook? Sure. I mean, obviously, I think everything changes when you become a partner, particularly if you're a partner at a challenger law firm like going to cook. In terms of the day-to-day work, I'm acting for quite similar clients. So a mixture of SMEs, some very large organisations. I do a mixture of managing the portfolio work, but Um, obviously my background and primary strength is in litigation and what's really nice about working in a firm like Gunner Cook is having the opportunity to pull in expertise from across the firm so we've got lawyers who are really specialists in, in all sorts of different areas whether it's fraud or you know even things like equine law right the way through to the more traditional practice areas like employment and corporate obviously and commercial so having that background and that support has been really helpful in terms of building up my practice i mean obviously i think the most important thing that you realize very quickly as a partner is that your job is all about relationships and whether that's relationships with clients with fellow partners or with your employees it's absolutely essential to know and be able to empathize with people and help them with their problems, which may be obvious in the sense of a legal problem, but sometimes they're a bit less 
a bit less of a legal problem necessarily, but nevertheless something that's really important to them from a personal perspective. And I think that's been probably the biggest learning journey of the last couple of years has been the value of those personal relationships. And from a legal perspective, I guess I am now much more involved than I ever was in the full journey and in just having regular chats to work out where people are. And obviously the last year has been really important from that point of view because I work with clients in both the technology sector, which has been fairly well placed throughout the last six months and fashion, which has definitely had a much more challenging journey. And on both sides of that coin, people have had very difficult issues that they've had to grapple with, even if sometimes that's handling success, handling too much business, right the way through to managing redundancy programs and that sort of thing, which is obviously not the sort of thing that any client wants to have to manage. But there are ways of approaching it that can limit the pressure. So I suppose going back to your original question, the biggest change for me has been thinking more holistically and approaching clients' problems rather than it just being, how can I help you with your IP? Thinking much more, how can I help you with your business? And if it's not something that I personally have the legal experience of, to be able to find the right person who does have that experience and support them through that process. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it sounds a lot more sort of entrepreneurial in some sense, like what you're saying there in terms of supporting the whole sort of piece for clients and maintaining and fostering those relationships, which I really, really like. And I guess before Gunnacook, you were with sort of more traditional law firm structures. How did you find that move and what have been some of the the sort of differentiators from firms? Because I know you obviously trained with the likes of Oswang now, of course, CMS and a senior IP lawyer with Fox Williams and had a good stint there. But so how did you find the sort of shift from a traditional law firm structure to where you are today? Well, so, I mean, funnily enough, obviously, one of the big differences with Gunner Cook is that everyone is set up to work remotely. So ironically, that's not such a great differentiator <laughs> anymore, because I think everyone has got used to remote working to one degree or another. I personally much prefer being around people. I'm definitely an extrovert personality type and I found peak lockdown very challenging from that point of view. So the biggest difference from my point of view has been working. I I choose to have some office space in a co-working studio and to be around other people in different businesses. So that's completely different to the way that a law firm operates. It means that in my lunch break, I'm able to chat with someone who's selling format rights into the New Zealand market, somebody else who's founded a new fintech lending business, other people who are working on new types of sustainable footwear. So being surrounded by entrepreneurs makes it much more rewarding for me and again feeds into this positive loop of thinking about how I can help my clients and ideas for improving and supporting people. And that's just not the way that law firms think or or operate. It's much more about really revenue generation. And I suppose I'm thinking obviously revenue generation, but by doing a good job and using that to to grow rather than necessarily thinking in quite the same way that a traditional firm does. I also think, you know, one of the interesting aspects of Gunnacook is that it's much more senior heavy. So I'm able to work with more established lawyers who are often 
slightly more expensive on a hourly rate basis, but are able to fix their fees so that we can get to likely the same price or lower than what a regular law firm would charge. But with the knowledge that it's being done by someone who's got many years under their belt and can really identify exactly what the client's core need is, deliver that in a way that I don't think I've seen in in any of the firms that I've worked with before. Really, I think the biggest change is one of mindset. And, And like you say, it's all coming back to thinking from an entrepreneurial point of view. And because all Gunnicott partners are, by their nature, entrepreneurs, it's quite self-selecting in that way. So everybody is always thinking, how do I build my practice? How do I build my business? And for me, that's always been about how do I help my clients? Okay, well, that's interesting. Do you think more law firms should become more like the the Gunnicott model? And do you think that will happen or, or not? So I think quite a lot of law firms have embraced some aspects of it. So there are consultancy type programs in lots of law firms now. And I think that's obviously been quite beneficial for groups of lawyers, you know, particularly women who may have taken a break or may have been inclined to take a break, but now no longer have to after children or when they've got more children at home. I mean, obviously not just women, but that still tends to be where things fall. I would hope that over time, law firms will learn some of the lessons of the pandemic and see the opportunities for them. I think that's certainly been what I've seen anecdotally, but it takes quite a long time to steer some of these shifts in a different direction. And as transformative as the pandemic has been, I'm not 100% sure that it will change things permanently. I suppose one of the other big changes is the adoption of different types of technologies, which again is something that at Gunnicook I've embraced right from the beginning because it's really the key to being able to punch above my weight on one level and it enables efficiency. It's much better from a client point of view to have more transparency over the process and the timings and everything. And obviously cost, which is always an important consideration. I think Law firms are much more forward-thinking than I think they often get credit for, even the established ones. And I'm sure that a lot of the changes that we've been able to produce in Gunnicook will slowly reach the rest of the market. The one thing that I think will be very difficult to pass on is this mindset, because for as long as you're focused on drawings or on the lockstep model or whatever, alternative to that, the um, partnership agreement has put in place. It's always going to be different to the way that you think about things. As your listeners may or may not appreciate, Gunnicook is much more like the barrister model, where we take a percentage of every invoice, but that's it. There is no additional support beyond around the finance compliance, the sort of standard legal functions. So if you have a more quiet month, then that's just the way it is. So you have to balance your workflow and think quite carefully about where you expend resources and how you focus on your business development initiatives. Um, again, I think it's made me a much better lawyer and a much better business person to think of in this way. But I 100% appreciate that it, you know lots of people want the certainty and security of regular drawings or a salary. So it's something that works exceptionally well for me, but I can isn't necessary for everyone and for that reason that I don't think that necessarily the exact Gunnicott model will 
become the norm. Although, as I said, the consultancy sort of hybrid of getting paid just for what you've done, but on an hourly rate basis, which is more akin, I suppose, to a zero-hours contract, might become a little bit more common than it has been to date. Yeah, no, and thanks for sharing that sort of in-depth answer. I think that gives a really good balanced view on what may or may not happen. But we must, as I said at the top of the conversation, talk about your recently published book on European oh, fashion yeah. law. So what inspired you to, to author that? Well, I mean, it's like all things. It's the sort of thing that you agree to when you're feeling very optimistic and naive about the amount of time it takes to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> And then reality sets in. I suppose my inspiration came from seeing that there were quite a lot of really good resources that looked at fashion law from a US perspective, but there was certainly nothing that was as in-depth as what I produced that was thinking from a more UK perspective. And I really wanted to create something that was really user-friendly and accessible for people, whether or not they were lawyers or in business. So, I mean, I've gone about that in various ways. It's largely written, addressed directly to the audience, as opposed to in that slightly more indirect passive voice that you read in a lot of legal articles. I've also tried to make it as easy to follow as possible. So, for example, there are little icons that appear throughout the book to highlight areas where it's particularly important or there might be something that's useful. So it's very cheesy, but essentially if there's a picture of a coat hanger in the margin, that means that it's an important point and a lot hangs on it. Uh, if yeah, if there are some sunglasses, it means that it's a cool, practical point. And if there's a slightly retro 80s icon of a T-shirt, it means that it's something that might go out of where the law is in flux and it might not be current in a few years. So obviously around anything relating to the EU and the UK, that had a lot of T-shirt icons. (laughs) (laughs) And um, because it came out in 2019 before we really, well, I wouldn't say that anyone knows exactly what Brexit is going to bring at the moment, but. And there was even less certainty over what what was going to happen. Yeah. So would you say fashion law is one of your favourites and is sort of subsection part of IP law or what, what's your sort of favourite part? Well, the honest answer, Rob, is that there isn't such a thing as fashion law. It's a combination of the different aspects of law that are relevant for the fashion industry. And I think it's really helpful to think in those terms when you're thinking about clients. So I do a lot of work with gaming clients, with fashion clients, with FNCG clients generally, and then with all sorts of other things. So I've done cases in the last year to do with the brake glass devices that you have in buses, to do with children's toys, and to do with tender documents for security contracts around installation of alarms and that sort of thing. So a real mixture of things and obviously IP being the common element. But I think it's really helpful for clients to also know the things that are particularly relevant for them. So I like to frame new developments in IP from a technology and from a fashion perspective. It's easy to look at a legal update and not really get why it might be relevant or useful. But once you've translated it into, I suppose, localized into the sector language, then it's much more helpful for clients to to understand and appreciate how it's relevant to them. 
And that's really been the approach that I've taken to fashion law, but it's also the approach I take with my technology and gaming clients as well. And one of the really fun things has been watching as those two areas have converged over time, you know, so wearable technology being a really good example of that. But also the sale of digital fashion, you know, whether it's through Animal Crossing and those sorts of games, seeing more and more these interesting ways of essentially allowing people to wear a fashion item in their Instagram photo, which from a sustainability point of view is much preferable to people buying the item and then trying it on and sending it back using the returns process. And it is a really good example of fashion and technology collaborating to try and solve a problem. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that coming togetherness. And I guess to put you on the spot a little bit, you've worked with some incredibly high profile IP disputes from Superdry versus sort of Abercrombie and Fitch to Philips versus Nintendo. What has been your most rewarding case you've worked on during your career, you would say? What stands out to you? I mean, every case has its highs and its lows, as I think any litigator will tell you. I would say probably in recent years, because it's the first really big case I've done as a partner, earlier this year had a really great settlement to do with a dispute on Bauhaus lamp. And obviously, I can't go into the terms of the settlement. But what I can tell you is that we got a public notice in L Decoration which came out in the August edition. And I can tell you, it's very, very challenging to get these public notices agreed as part of the settlement. But to get one in nail decoration, it was a real win for the client. And what was really nice was that it even included a photograph of the client's product. So it was just really fantastic advertising for them and great to have that really clear notice going out to the market that these sorts of replicas won't be tolerated any longer. And that has been a real highlight of the last six months and something that happened, you know, a rare moment of joy during the bleak moments of lockdown as well. (laughs) Good for you and congratulations. And I guess as we look to close, there is one sort of platform I want to talk about, which is TikTok, because that's becoming more and more popular. Do you see more social media related sort of IP disputes on the horizon? Obviously, it's been well publicized recently. But what do you see with regards to social media and IP disputes happening? Well, so obviously, they've become major, if not almost the most important channel for a lot of counterfeiters. And when you've got people like the Jenna sisters promoting products that are, in fact, counterfeit, I'm sure against their knowledge, it makes you realize how big time social media has become as a problem from an IP perspective. I assume you are alluding more towards the piracy side of TikTok, but it's actually the counterfeit product side that I've seen the most alarm at because the sort of technology around taking down unlicensed content is getting better all the time. And that's a relatively easy thing to do compared to identifying whether or not an item that's being promoted, whether it's on TikTok or Instagram or wherever, um, by an influencer is in fact genuine or not. And I find the whole influencer space really fascinating. And I've done quite a bit of work with clients around managing their influencer like either their own influencers and also managing issues that arise with influencers promoting things that aren't genuine. And it's much more challenging than you might think because 
it's just so fast, you know, something blows up and almost by the time the brand's aware of it, the flood has passed and it might not even be possible to buy a test purchase of the counterfeit, which is obviously one of the first stages in being able to start an infringement action. So tracking that and ways of using technology, partnering with different groups, including obviously people like the police from the criminal side, particularly where there's a safety dimension to it, Thinking through in those terms is really where social media is super interesting, but also really problematic. And that is definitely a hot topic and something to really keep an eye on. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great way to end on, on, on that sense, raising. You shared some really fascinating insights, particularly around the world of sort of IP there. And if people want to follow or get in touch with you about anything they've heard today or want to learn more about your European Fashion Law book, what's the best way or platform for them to to do that, to get in touch? Obviously, I'm not on one platform only, Rob. Um, So the best (laughs) way to contact me is always, frankly, by email. So that's rosie.burbage at gunnercook with an E on the end dot com. But in terms of following me, I'm on Instagram and Twitter as at Rosie Burbage. And then I also have accounts for my book. So europeanfashionlaw.com is the website. And there's a discount available on there if you were inclined to purchase the book after having heard all about it. But it's also on Twitter and Instagram as well as at European Passion Law. And I've even, dare I say it, got my own slight vanity domain. So rosieburbage.com has got a collection of all of the blog posts and articles that I've written, um, at least over the last three or four years. And I think those are my main channels. No YouTube channel yet, although there are some videos of me on there. I work quite closely with Crafty Council. So I've done various um, intro to IP explainers through Crafty Council, many of which have made it onto YouTube as well. So there's no shortage of ways to get in touch and find out more about me and my practice. Great stuff. No, absolutely. Yeah, you've given some really good handles there for people to get in touch. So from all of us on the on the show, Rosie, thanks a million. It's been a real pleasure having you on, learning about your journey and learning more about your practice and, and what you're going to no doubt go on and achieve even further. So wishing you lots of continued success at Gonna Cook. But for now, over and out. Well, thank you very much, Rob. It's been a pleasure.